And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Saturday Slammin' Jam. Hosted by Andrew Schlicht with Alex Spears. How about we can just watch basketball? That's a man's jam! I like that idea. Live from Oklahoma. With questions and participants from all around the world. Anthony Edwards! Put that on a poster! Whether you're flipping your flapjacks, tending to your yard, or just sipping your coffee, get ready, sit back, relax. It's the Saturday Slammin' Jam. Back is I missed this shot, I walk away, I'm still a chump. Here's Andrew. Welcome to the Saturday Slam and Jam. I'm your host, Andrew Schlecht. Go to theathletic.com slash NBA show and get The Athletic for $1 a month for six months. If you haven't done that yet, it's time. We are in the middle of the playoffs. We got the lottery in two weeks. This is, uh, it's time. Everybody has something to read at The Athletic right now. Uh, with me today is not Alex Spears. It's actually my good friend Will Guillory, who covers the Pelicans for us at The Athletic. Will, what's up, man? I'm doing well, man. I'm just glad to be back on the pod with you. It's been a minute. I was busy uh, watching the Suns make every single shot they attempted against the Pelicans <laughs> in their playoff series. Uh, so now I'm back, and apparently the Suns still aren't missing any shots. So things haven't changed that much. Right. Uh, Will, with us today, we've got Mark Schindler of basketballnews.com. Mark, thanks for joining. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I thought you were going to call me your good friend for a second as well, but it's okay. I'll, I'll live, Andrew. Don't worry about well, it. Well, we'll get there, Mark. <laughs> we we got to take baby steps here. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Same thing with the Thunder. You know, you're just accumulating draft picks. We'll see. Yes, <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so I thought I would get us together today. To just There are just so many takes flying around right now on Twitter, on podcasts and articles. I wanted to do something a little bit different and I'm going to give you guys a take and I want you to tell me if this sinks or floats. So the first one is, and we'll start with Mark on this one. Giannis is the best player left in the playoffs. Does this idea sink or float? Oh man, that is, I'm going to go with float. I think he is still like, I, I think he's the best player in the NBA. I know he struggled a little bit against Boston, but I, I'm there. Yeah, I, I agree. I think he, I, I think Giannis. I was about to say is, should be considered the best player left. I think he's got so much in his bag. He, he's dominant on both sides of the court. I'm a big KD is the best player in the world guy, and it's not. Yeah. It's kind of lonely on this island right now after the first round. <laughs> I'm still there currently. I'm still holding on by a string. But yeah, I think among the guys left, I think Giannis is easily the most dominant. So who who's next on this list of the of the best players? I mean, I think that you could argue, and John Hollinger wrote an article about this on the Athletic today, that the player that's played the best so far in the playoffs is Chris Paul. Um, mm-hmm. But but who else is on this list? Like, is it, who who's getting close to Giannis for you, Mark? Oh gosh, that's such a good question. I think the only player who I would say is left that's close to him would be. I mean, obviously Steph and Luca, but I think Steph's been a little bit better than Luca this year, at least in my opinion. Um, but those two guys would be the only two who would come close. I know some would probably bring up Ja. I'm not there with Ja yet. I wasn't there with the MVP talk this year. 
obviously has been really good. But again, when you're when you're up at this level and you're nitpicking and, and, and picking hairs, like yeah, I I think Steph and, and Luca are the only two that would be close there. What does yeah, what does John need to do for you? Uh defense. Defense would yeah. be a good thing. But uh as as the Grizzlies can attest to as well, the, it is it's very rough on that end right now. <laughs> Yeah, I just think out of respect, you got to throw Steph up there just because mm-hmm. of his history. And I think uh, Tatum as well deserves a shout out. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just the way he stepped up his game, the defense he played on KD in round one, the shot making he has. I think he's been incredible and he stepped up his game big time. So I think he's not quite up there yet with Giannis, but I think he he, he deserves to be in this discussion for sure. Yeah. Another honorable mention that doesn't deserve to be like like top two consider, but like the way Devin Booker has played. I've just been so impressed, like as a shot maker and as a defender. Like he just he's learning to do it all, uh, which has been super impressive to me. And will we say what Herb Jones is top fifteen, top twelve, oh, or top five already, man? <laughs> <laughs> man, we, if we're gonna talk to anybody, Bi has taken a jump, and I don't know yeah. how many people have noticed. And he doesn't; oh. he's not necessarily a part of this conversation, but he's taken a leap, uh, and that's been really fun to watch. Take two. We'll start with Will. The Grizzlies are lucky to be tied one-one with the Warriors right now. Oh, I, I'm, I'm going. I'm going with this one sinking. I, I, I think that's a little strong. I, I think they they haven't been as good as we thought they would be. You know, going into this series, especially considering the matchup. Uh, but I think both of these games have been close. Uh, Dylan Brooks basically didn't play game two. Uh, I think they're right there with that Warriors team. So I think 1-1 is probably fair, uh, especially considering the way Ja played in game two. So I think it's much closer than a lot of people are trying to make it out because, oh, the Warriors shot so terribly in game two. Draymond got kicked out in game one. Uh, But I think these two teams are relatively even up to this point, and that's what I expected. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with Will. I think that this take sinks for me. Um, like this this Grizzlies team is good, man. They deserve the props. Uh, and and as Will alluded to a little bit as well, I'm sick of the shot quality debate that we have after every game. Like a team shoots 30 percent from three, and they're like, well, you know, that's not going to happen next game. Like, okay, I get it. Obviously, that plays a factor, but also, why did they shoot 30 percent from three? Like, part of it was they missed a lot of shots in that game, but also. Grizzlies defense was really good, man. Like DeAnthony Melton was fantastic that game after really struggling last round. Mm-hmm. Um, you just got to give props where it's due. So I, I'm there as well. I don't know if they'll win the series, but they, they deserve to be here and they're, they're playing really darn well. Yeah. The only reason I, that I would say that it floats is just Desmond Bain's injury, I think, is impacting things greatly for them. And now they're having to kind of figure out where are they going to get the scoring? Like, is Zaire Williams going to step up and score 14 points in this next game? Like, what, where are they getting the points if they're not getting it from Bain, I think, is, is a giant question for them. And I think no Gary Payton for the rest of this series potentially is going to be huge yeah. just, just for the matchup against Ja. Because without him, they just don't have the guys with the foot speed to stay in front of Ja. And I mean, most people don't. But I think that was their best option. And you saw once he was gone, Clay struggling with that matchup. Jordan Poole struggling with that matchup. So I think that's going to be something to watch. It's just how they, they can stay in front of Ja now that their best perimeter defender is gone. Yeah, what what do they do? Like they mentioned like dusting off JTA or like what – What's what's the move if you're yeah, maybe you're Wiggins? I don't know. What do you think, yeah. Mark? I mean, I think it might be more Jonathan Kaminga minutes. Honestly, um, not that I think he's going to be able to stay in front of job, but just getting more length out there, getting more uh, more athleticism. Honestly, because I think uh, as good as this Grizzlies team is, I wouldn't say that they're like a poor athletic team. 
Um, but outside of Ja, like they don't really have, I mean, like obviously Jaron's a good athlete, but he's more like, you know, stride based and how he's able to cover ground. Brandon Clark is as well. But like, I think just getting as many guys out there who can, uh, condense the paint and recover out to the perimeter on a team that doesn't have a lot of great shooters, especially with, with Bane injured would probably be the way to go here. I mean, we saw, uh, Minnesota had a lot of success with that. Obviously, you know, they ended up losing, but I think that would probably be what I'd imagine they do. Next take sinker float. Miami is the most underrated team left in the playoffs. Uh, this one can sink for me. I'm sorry. Like, okay, go I, ahead. Uh, I'm going to get heat for this. I, <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. wow. hey, um, I like what you did there. Uh, I, they're a really good team. Like they deserve to be the one seed. They played really well this regular season. I really struggle with their half court offense almost as much as they do. And um, it's just, it's really tough. Like, I mean, as good as they've been in this series, again, like Embiid is out. I think uh, this series is a lot closer from Embiid's in just because of how, you know, how things are going to muck up in the half court for them. And we, even then, like as much as they've beaten the crap out of Philadelphia, these two games, like their half court offense does not look good. Um, you've seen a lot of issues with just dribble handoffs has, have been a problem for them recently. Like uh, Jimmy Butler and PJ Tucker were all over the place with one another in the last two games, which was just kind of weird. We haven't seen that a lot this year. They've really missed Kyle Lowry, but I also just, I mean, we've seen this year, Kyle does not fix the half court for them. He makes it better, but against the best defenses in the NBA, which is, I mean, they're going to face either Milwaukee who has a ton of size and length or Boston, who is incredibly switchable and also has a lot of really just smart, intuitive players. I really struggle to see how their offense is going to look at a championship level. Obviously, the defense is really good, but um, I would I, I probably can't get there with most underrated. Yeah, I'm right there with you, and I think I might be skipping ahead to one of our uh, questions we have coming up. But to me, the the most underrated team in my mind is easily the Suns. I, I think people just aren't talking. I think we should be talking about them the way we talked about, you know, those Warriors teams or those Cavs teams that were just kind of walking to the finals every year. I, I think they're they've been that dominant. I think that they're set up to have that type of run through these Western Conference playoffs. And I think they're just so good at every level. They're so smart. They're the best fourth quarter team in the league. CP's playing at an incredible level. Devin Booker. And I think when you talk to most people about, you know, what do you expect from the Suns going forward? It's less about how teams are going to beat them. And it's more about, well, is CP going to make it through four rounds? You know, can he last? Can he? We're so used to something happen to CP during the playoffs and it hasn't right. happened yet. And I think so most people are kind of anticipating that. But I think when you just watch them on the court, I just can't see anybody beating them. Just They're just too good at every level. Like, especially looking at uh, like DeAndre Ayton just hasn't been talked about enough for how good he's been. I mean, I think a lot got brought out about, you know, ah, yeah, Chris Paul was was awesome. He was. He was, I mean, the best player in that series against the Pels. But I thought Ayton was who really broke that series open for uh, for the Suns. Like as good. Like, I mean, a lot of people look at it and say that JV's defense was bad and it wasn't perfect, but. I mean, what else was he supposed to do? Like, either you're containing what CP's doing and trying to 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 crowd him at the elbow, or he's flipping the ball back to to Aiden, who's wide open from 16 feet, and he shoots 52 percent on those shots. Like, it's just an unsolvable problem. Nikias Duncan wrote about this really great piece the other day um, on just how hard it is to stop that pick and roll. And I think you've seen that time and time again from good defensive teams not being able to contain it. Like. I think Dallas, obviously, their their defense has fallen off a little bit in the playoffs, partially just because of scheming and you know having better scouting on it. But 
I mean, this was a, a top five defense throughout the year, and you're seeing them just being able to to brutalize it, frankly. And uh, yeah, I, I'm there with you, Will. I think we don't talk enough about how good this Suns team is. I joked about it earlier, but I mean, it's really tough to play defense against a team when they don't miss shots. <laughs> I mean, yes. they shot 60% in a closeout game. I, I mean, I've I never seen anything like that before. CP obviously went perfect. Uh, Aiden missed two shots in, in that game six. So yeah, I mean, they're just so efficient in everything they do, and they just know where to get their shots and how to get them, no matter what kind of defense you're playing. It's, mm-hmm. it's so impressive to watch. Yeah, the thing with the Suns, and this is our next question, is like, should the Suns be the heavy favorite? Or the Suns are the heavy favorite? And I think this absolutely floats. I think this team has been ridiculous. I mean, the thing is that they have so many weapons to use. It They don't, like, DeAndre Aiden's been great, but he didn't have to be great for them to win and win convincingly. Because he wasn't awesome in that game two against Dallas, and they didn't really need him to be. Because they've had a ton of guys stepping up. Mikel Bridges has had his moments. Cam Johnson can have his moments. Jay Crowder's been hitting his shots, which is really important for them too. I mean, if if they're having, you know, Jay Crowder games where he's hitting multiple threes, like you just know that you're absolutely done. All right, next take. This is the last time that we will see this version of the Dallas Mavericks with the Luca Dinwiddie Brunson trio. And cue the Kodak meme. I hope so. Um, like <laughs> <laughs> I, not 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 to be unfair to to Dinwiddie and Brunson, but I think it's just so clear how uh, like a lot of this is being put on Luca, and I do think like the defense was really rough in that game. Obviously, like there's there's no if ands or buts about that. But I also think so much of this is just the deficiencies of their roster right now. I mean, uh, the reason that trade happened is because Kristaps Porzingis wasn't working out as a second guy. Luckily, I mean Spencer has been really good for them. He was fantastic in the Jazz series. He still does things that are important for them, but. Um, I think you just see how overtaxed Luke is right now. I think part of that, yes, he would look better if he's playing off the ball and could do more off the ball, but also he's Luka Doncic. Like you're, you're getting him to run the offense. You've seen uh, Mikhail Bridges just absolutely be able to hound Jalen Brunson at the point of attack. Like all those buckets that were there for him last series looks completely different now because they're letting him get into the paint, but they're also just crunching down on everything he's doing. He's not able to get the separation that he was you know, just a week ago, and it looks entirely different. And I think you just see a lot of one-dimensional players on the team. And again, like good players, but just having them in smaller roles would be a lot better. Um, So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with the team right now. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I think I I really like Brunson. I think mm-hmm. Dinwiddie's fine. You know, I could take him or leave him, but I think Brunson is is going to be really good with another team that just gives him more opportunities, uh, just a, a bigger role in the offense. And obviously, when you play with Luca, the ball's just going to be in his hands most of the time because he's just so damn good. You want him with the ball most of the time. Uh, but I think uh, with Brunson, I, I think he. he I'm not sure whether I just want him to run more pick and roll. I want to take the ball away from Luca, but I just feel like the formula they have right now is just not efficient just because when you put that much on one guy's shoulders, it feels like the dam's going to break at some point, you know, as great as Luca has been. I feel like just spreading the, the love around a little bit more is just a better way just to run things, but I'm just not sure if that's possible with the way that they run their offense. And and when a guy is just so good as Luca is, I don't know if you, you want to take the ball away from him uh, but I just think looking forward just asset just the way you want to use your assets I don't know if paying Brunson 20 25 million is the smart thing to do when you're Dallas when 
the offense is going to run through Luka 80% of the time anyway. So you're probably better off spending that money on guys who can play defense, who can hit spot up threes, who can maybe protect the rim a little bit better than Dwight Powell or, or Maxi Kleber. So I think, uh, I, I think not keeping Brunson is a smart move, but I really think Brunson is a good player. And I think he's going to be good wherever he ends up next. Uh, but I, I just think he, he's a good player. And I think we don't get to see him shine as much because he's next to Luca. Uh, and I think he's going to be good once he goes somewhere else. Yeah. So you project like a, a signing trade with Brunson, like how do like the Mavericks, they just let him walk. They preserve the asset. How do they, how do they make this work? Cause yeah. they're, it's not like the most simple situation for Dallas. Not at all. Cause you can't just let them walk. Right. I think that's a bad look. If you let a, a really good player just walk for nothing. But then when you look at like, say the Knicks roster, I mean, what do you really want to get back? Do you want to do a double sign and trade Brunson, Mitch Robinson? I don't know if yeah. Robinson's the kind of guy you want in Dallas. I, I'm not sure. Uh, maybe once you open up sign and trades, then, then that opens up the possibility of him going basically anywhere, right? It's just about matching contracts. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, but like I said, I, I just don't think spending that much money on Brunson, when you, you, I don't think it makes that much sense for Dallas, just the way they want to build that roster around Luka. So speaking of Luka, the Suns targeting Luka, at the end of game two exposes his lack of elite conditioning. I've heard a lot of people talking about his conditioning. Uh, Mark, you have thoughts on this? Um, I, I don't know. It's tough. Like I, I'm not a professional athlete, so it's hard for me to weigh in on it, but like, I, I think it's less about the conditioning and more just like you're seeing how difficult it is to do what he's doing. Like you can't really have 36% usage for 40 minutes in a playoff game and be good at defense too. I think like, Obviously, like, I think part of what's hard is like the litmus test is LeBron with this stuff. And like, LeBron is insane. Like, how many people can actually do what LeBron did? And even then, like, if you're being fair growing up in Cleveland, like watching him and, you know, after 2015, he, he coasted a bit on defense, especially, you know, leading into the playoffs. And uh, I mean, that changed up obviously later on. But I think it, it just feeds into more of like, okay, well, can we get the guys who can make it so that he's, he's not on the ball as much? Um, plays into it. But I mean, conditioning was an issue for him at the beginning of the year. He definitely came in a little bit out of shape. Um, but I don't think that's an issue now, like it, it, at least at where we're at. It's just really hard to to play that that long and be 100% on both ends. Yeah, as the guy who covers uh, Zion Williamson on a daily basis, I try to avoid conditioning talks a, yep. as much as possible during the offseason. So that's what I'm going to do right now. Uh, <laughs> well, there, if I know I could just skip out on it, I would have. <laughs> but I do think uh, I, I think multiple things can be true right here. I do agree mm -hmm. with Mark that when you when you put so much on one guy's shoulder to to say, oh yeah, you got to defend the pick and roll every single time on the other end. I think it's a lot to put on one guy's shoulder. But I do think Luca just has to be better on defense. Period. I mean, yep. they were straight clowning him in game two. Yeah. Uh, CP, we know when CP kind of smells blood in the water, he just kind of goes at you over and over again, and he wants people to kind of laugh at you while he's doing it. And I think when you're the face. Of the franchise like Luca, when you're one of the best players, potentially the best player in the league at some point, you can't uh, allow yourself to just become a target like that in the playoffs. So I think he has to be better. And I do think if this, if what happened to him in game two happened to guys like a Trey Young or a James Harden, I think we would have been killing him much more than we are. I, I think people are kind of making more excuses for him just because we've seen Luca play at such a high level in the playoffs. We don't want to say, well, this is Luca's fault, but I do think. 
again, when you're that guy for your team, you got to be able to step up and at least put up a fight on defense. And I think they were just scoring on him every single time over and over again. And of course, it's a lot on him just because of his offensive responsibility, but he just got to be better. You just got to be able to hold your own in that matchup and not just get killed over and over again the way he was in game two. So, so what kind of player do they need to bring in? Because like Brunson's good on ball. They brought in Dinwiddie as like a another ball handler, and yet he still has this astronomical usage rate. So like, what's the? Does he need somebody with like more clout? Like, what's the what's the fix <laughs> here? Because they do have like multiple guards that can handle and that can create a little bit. And so I just wonder like, what's the what's going to be the tipping point for Luca? The rusty? No, just kidding. Uh, like I think uh, to me it's just more like not even necessarily having an all-star, but it's just like when I mentioned like one dimensional part of the issue is like Spencer Dinwiddie, really good driver is a good pick and roll player, but he's not a good catch and shoot player. Like similar to like mm-hmm. somebody like Karis LeVert, like if he doesn't have the ball in his hands, he's not really getting uh, worried about as a shooter. Um, even with Brunson, like, like you mentioned, like Brunson's so good with the ball in his hands and he's good attacking off the second side, but also like just given his, his stature and he's got a relatively set shot. People aren't as worried. Like they're they're willing to cheat off somebody who's six foot one and, and just recover and and contest his shot. And, it, and it's effective. Like you saw, I think he only had one attempt from three in the first game. And a lot of that was the Suns running him off the line. Um, so I think to me, it's more just having somebody, it doesn't even have to be another star player, but somebody who can run actions and be effective off the ball. Because now they have like a lot of guys who are effective off the ball, but they can't really collapse to the paint. Like Dorian Finney-Smith might be their best at doing that, and that's like not not shade at Dorian, but like he's ideally your your fourth or fifth starter. Like you know, if you have Reggie Bullock out there, it would be really awesome if Reggie Bullock could could get more than four feet in off of a really hard closeout. And again, that's not shade on him, but just like I think you see some of the deficiencies in their offense through that. So getting somebody who is able to do multiple things instead of just be really good at one thing would be really good for their offense, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think just getting just bigger wings, bigger guys on the perimeter. I think when you're playing those two guards, Dinwiddie and Brunson, you're just really small. And I think going back to the the team we talked about the most here, the Suns have kind of set the example for everybody. You need three, four of those six, seven, six, eight, six, nine guys on the wing who can switch, defend multiple positions, hit spot up threes. Uh, I think those are the ideal players to put around Luka. Obviously, you need somebody who can get their own buckets, but I think just getting bigger on the perimeter, I I think is going to help them a lot. Okay, Will, this next one's for you. We are entering a new chapter of James Harden's career. Is this sink or float for you? I I, I think this is a a floater for me, man. I, I think it's just been hard watching you know, James Harden, you know, get to this point and, and just the, the way he's playing. Obviously, it's just so much attention on him with Embiid gone and, and they run so much of their offense through Embiid, you know, during the season. So that just to take him away, I, I think it's just kind of a shock for everybody just to just to kind of figure out what the offense looks like without him in the middle. Uh, but man, I think the most interesting storyline going into the offseason this year is what happens with James Harden in Philly? What type of contract do they give him? And it's not just him. I think what how does that affect Embiid's future in Philly? I think it's going to be really interesting because I think people uh, kind of sleep on the fact that Embiid's 28 right now. I mean, this isn't a guy who's just getting started in his career. When we talk about big guys, guys with his injury history, 28 is like you got to strike while the iron's hot because there's no guarantee he's going to be this great at 33, 34 years old. Uh, so I think he understands that. I think Philly understands that. That That's why there was so much urgency during the Ben Simmons saga to get a guy of James Harden's caliber, at least the guy who they thought James Harden was going to be. 
so yeah, I just don't see him getting back to the guy we saw, you know, in Houston or maybe even early Brooklyn. So I, I think that's going to be really interesting with Philly, just how they handle that situation and how it affects Embiid and his future with the franchise and just his future in the NBA. And what does that mean for him as a potential MVP in the future? A guy who obviously wants to get a ring at some point. Can he do that when James Harden as his number two? I, I think it's going to be really tough when you see how good the East has become. So, yeah, I think that's the biggest story in the NBA, you know, once this season is over, is what happens with James Harden and how much are they willing to invest in him just because they traded so much away to get him, right? It's just uh, watching him in this Heat series, it's been, uh, I think in some ways it's been tough because it's a little bit undersold how rough some of their secondary guys have been. Like Tobias has been really good in the playoffs, but yeah. um, like George Yang was really, really rough. The, the, these last couple games um and you see how much they're able to cheat in and just like completely double james Harden. but also like was mentioning that didn't used to be a problem in houston like that's just okay i'm i'm destroying you for doing that and you can tell it's different like i still think that james is obviously a very good player but I, i'm i'm kind of inclined to agree i just really question you know what what his hamstring is like right now, if he's able to get back. So what I think James is like, what, 32, 33 right now, pretty close to that. Um, obviously, I'm not writing off his career, but it's uh, it'll be really interesting to see what he looks like coming back from, from a full offseason next year. I mean, he's fully under the microscope right now, too. Yeah. Because if Embiid is, is playing and is relatively healthy, like there's another player on the court that has gravity. And James can still use like one of his best skills, which is passing. Like he's been an unbelievable passer for all of his career. And so maybe he's not the 50 to $60 million running mate, but if, if he's willing to take a discount, like he's still not a bad player to have. I would be surprised. We, we talked about like Brunson walking, like would they let James Harden walk this off season. Like oh. I just have a hard time believing Daryl Morey would actually do that. Um, but maybe things aren't so bad because I think if Embiid is there, he's the best player in the series. He takes a ton of pressure off of James. We're not talking about James not being able to turn the corner on Victor Oladipo every night. Maybe the, there's a little bit more give there for James than what we see right now because, I mean, you can also point to like Tobias Harris has had an incredible series. Like he's, he's looked really, good. really, really good. And some of that is that James is James's passing has really helped Tobias. And so you have to wonder about that angle too because it it all it's easy to watch James and say like he's definitely not that guy anymore but can he still be a helpful NBA player like can he still be one of your best three players um we haven't talked about Tyrese Maxey Maxey's looked like the best guy on the Sixers team offensively through this series and if Maxey continues to improve and you keep Harden around like there's there's a world where that Sixers team is okay you know next season if they bring everybody back but to me, it's all on Embiid. Like you take the MVP off of any team, like it's you're gonna you're gonna expose a, a lot of weaknesses. And so, part of me, I, I think that James deserves a lot of the heat that he's getting. But part of me just wonders if, like, what is it? What does it look like if Embiid's there? And also, just how much are you willing to invest in him? Right? I mean, it's it's going to be very expensive to give him a max contract this summer. And when you're looking four or five years on the road, giving him you know fifty plus million dollars, that's a lot to invest in a guy who we're talking about right now might be moving into the next phase of his career. What is he going to look like 
two, three years from now. So I think that's yeah. just going to be a, a huge decision for that front office. And, and it's going to be a game changer for everybody there because you mentioned it. I mean, Embiid at his best, you could argue he's the best player in the world. Yeah. And it, you got to put the right pieces around him. I, I, I just wouldn't want to have that decision if I was Daryl Morey. Elder Land, man. It's tough. I know. Yeah, lucky for us, we just get to watch the decisions unfold here with James Harden. Don't have to actually make any of them. Joel Embiid, it has been reported by Sham Sharania that he there's optimism that he will play. I feel so bad for Embiid. Like he's he's had trouble with the concussion. Like he is reported a couple of days ago that he couldn't even look at his phone screen because it hurts so bad. He's got the thumb. I mean, there's he's got the orbital. I mean, everything. Like there's just so many things with him. Um, that don't involve like his feet or his knees or anything like that. But my question to you, Will, is do you think that my, that Philly will get a game in this series against Miami? Man, just the way you laid it out, it, it sounds tough, right? Because <laughs> he's fighting through so much, <laughs> That's man. That's not a great setup for Philly. Man, yeah. but I, I just go back to I just have a lot of faith in Joel Embiid when he's on the court. I think he's one of the most dominant players in the NBA, and I think this matchup in particular is a good one for him because as much as we love Bam – He's just, he's just not, he doesn't have the size to deal with Embiid down there. They're just going to have to double Embiid over and over again. And I think that frees things up for Tobias, for James Harden, for Danny Green. I think life just gets a little easier for those guys once Embiid's around. So I think if he's healthy enough and he can play, I think they could get one in Philly, but I, I'd be shocked if this thing goes beyond five. If they'd been able to get one of the first games, I'd maybe feel a little bit better about it, but I, I don't feel super comfortable there i think maybe they can get one game if, if joel really just comes out and plays really well de- defensively like we've seen him be able to do but even then i mean their offense is going to be such a slog in the half court like it has been already i know joel adds a lot to that but given where he's at right now it's it feels unfair to expect him to come back and just be like capable of running a championship level offense so um yeah i'm with will i think i'd be surprised if it goes more than five okay last question we'll start with mark Really, without Chris Middleton, if you can find a way to either at least slow down Giannis, you've got the series if you're the Celtics. And it looked like they might have something with Grant Williams and Al Horford. So sink or float, the Celtics have figured out something with using Grant Williams and Al Horford on Giannis. I'm going to say sink. Not that I think that the Bucks are necessarily locked to win, but also like this is Giannis. I mean, like... I mm-hmm. just am confident that he's going to to figure his own things out. Like just, you know, watching series, like it just feels like things get figured out from, but you know, game by game, like every two games, it feels like there's a new storyline or new shift. And I'm really interested to see how things look for Giannis or how they start to scheme things differently. Um, I mean, we, we went from like that first game, their, their defense just absolutely pitching a shutout, making Boston look silly, look, look like they did in the first game of the year. And then Boston played their best offensive game that they have in, I mean, the entire calendar year. Uh, so I think I would lean towards saying that this series, like, even though the scores have been pretty far apart in both games, I, I think this is still going to go six or seven. And I would bank on Giannis finding his way. I think this one is destined to go seven. Uh, I, I'm not ready to say, you know, Grant Williams is the Giannis stopper or anything like that, but I think they're, they're doing an incredible job. And I think yeah. that that defense is just so smart and they have the right type of bodies to throw at Giannis. Uh, so I think they're going to do a pretty good job throughout this series. I don't think he's going to be below 40% 
the way we've seen him up to this point. I mean, Giannis is just too dominant. He's too good at getting to the rim. Uh, he's obviously a different player when they play in Milwaukee. So I think he's probably going to have one of those crazy 40 and 15 games at some point in Milwaukee, I would think. Uh, but I think Boston, they're just so good on defense and they're just so, uh, just so connected in everything they do. They understand how to play together, how to maneuver uh, around these guys. And I think they have, uh, like I said, the right type of bodies to throw at Giannis with Grant and Al Horford. So I think they're going to do a decent job of holding him down. I don't think they're going to do as well as they did through the first two games. Uh, but I think this is one that's going to go seven. Uh, these two teams are extremely even. And I think it's going to come down to, you know, how many of those dominant Giannis games can he pull out against this defense, especially if we don't see Chris Middleton at all. Uh, I just think it's going to come down to him just being supernova amazing because Boston's just super deep and they understand how to play together. And Aime Udoka is just doing an incredible job with that team. So I think they kind of have all the advantages on their side. But again, Giannis is on the other side. So it's just hard to go against him with everything he brings to the table. I just want to give credit to Grant Williams. Like He's become a really, really good player, and they can keep him on the court almost all the time because of his shooting. He's been a great corner three-point shooter, and he's so strong. Like That, mm-hmm. to me, is like if you're not ever going to stop Giannis. Like You can't just absolutely stop him, but you can slow him down if you've got guys with foot speed and strength, and that's what Grant Williams has. And Al Horford, to a degree, too, uh, has been really good for the Celtics so far and has been traditionally like one of the better defenders of Giannis. And he's shown that he's still got a little bit of that left in him and he can thank Sam Presti and OKC for letting him sit out (laughs) and rest up uh, and get ready for a series like this because he looks spry. And I, I like what the Celtics bring. They didn't even have Marcus Smart in game two. It didn't really seem to matter. Uh, a lot of that's that uh, Jalen Brown is like super aggressive offensively. If the Celtics keep coming up with answers. The Milwaukee has Giannis and Drew, and then like the list of creators, like the is it over? Is like who who else are we trusting to create baskets? I think that's where it gets really tough with Milwaukee, is that without Chris Middleton, it is it to me is is a tough series for them because I I feel like Boston has answer on answer on answer where Milwaukee is like it's only Giannis and if and and that's a great answer like honestly it's like the almost the perfect answer to a question but I just don't I don't I don't know I think I I have a little bit more belief in the Celtics team figuring things out but we'll see I think it'll I think this series will be is one of the more interesting ones as we move forward through the second round I mean when you were watching Al Horford last year in OKC did you think he still had this left in the tank that he still had one more of these playoff runs left in him where he's shutting down Giannis the way he was back in the day? No, but I was also watching him from like 50 feet away because we were still in like this weird <laughs> NBA bubble. So I don't know what I was watching that year, to be honest. It was, yeah. I'm wild. sorry for bringing up the Zoom year. The Zoom year, I, I just want to <laughs> forget everything about it. You're, you're right. Uh, no, it's crazy, man. Like Al, I remember uh, watching him play against the Nets. Like he's been, he's been good all year, but – that game against the first game against the Nets, I watched that game. And I got done. I'm like, that's the best game Al's played since he was in Atlanta, dude. Like that was yeah. nuts. The, the movement and motion that he's had. He's 
It's been awesome watching you play. He looks like you play another six or seven years. It's insane, man. Yeah, yeah, he legitimately does. He's knocking uh, down shots. And, I mean, our own Jared yeah. Rice reported back uh, around trade deadline time that they were looking to possibly move Al. You know, that's when they couldn't figure stuff out, uh, that they were trying to, you know, move on from Schroeder and all of those guys. And Al Horford was possibly a guy they were considering moving. And now look what he's doing during this playoff run. It's crazy. Yeah, you showed me a picture of Dennis Schroeder and asked me, like, how long ago? Did he play for the Celtics? I'd be like, it feels like years. This like this iteration of the Celtics, like it feels like they've been around forever. Like the way that Kyrie talked about them, like oh, they've been gelling for so long. Did a Schroeder played on this team this year? Like, do you yeah, remember that? Exactly. This team looked like a mess. Yeah. you know, at at the turn of the year, they've been incredible, and, and you know, credit to their coaching staff, and they developed a lot of really good habits, you know, through the last part of the season, and uh, I'm excited to watch them going forward. Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show. Be sure to go follow Mark on Twitter at MG underscore Schindler. You just changed your handle, right? Is that I right? Did. Did I yes, right? I did. I'm a terrible person okay. for doing it, but I did okay, do perfect. it. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, go read him at basketballnews.com uh, and at indycornrows.com. And you can also listen to him. He's on the Daily Ding with our guy Dave DeFore every week. So go listen to him there as well. Mark, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on. Hey, thank you, Mark. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. All right, well, it's time for our next guest. It's my guy, Keith Parrish of Fast Break Breakfast and the Grits and Grind podcast. Keith, what's up, man? Uh, nothing. You know, just playoffs, second round, and uh, everyone being mad. <laughs> First, I want to know your thoughts on T. Moran. Just give me uh, like two unfiltered thoughts on T. Moran. I like his energy. I like his enthusiasm. Okay. I like that, too. Okay. Is that too now much? The real- well, who, no, no. Who that, am I to great. say? I'm just a podcaster <laughs> cheering for the Grizzlies. I don't I know. I'm just, I just need, I just, I'm curious. That's kind I, of, I that's what use, I think too. Here's, here's my problem. My only problem uh-huh. is when the game is on and the league broadcast partner says, you know what we should do? We should put the game in one corner of the screen. Yeah. And we should use the rest of the screen to have T. Morant talk to maybe Carl and Towns' dad or anything like that. No, yeah. I do not need Team yeah. Rant while the game is happening. While the game is not happening, sure, yeah, show me Team Rant cheering. That's fun. No, yeah. what I need next year is I need Team Rant sitting next to Chet Holmgren's dad while he's holding the camcorder, <laughs> the video courtside. Camera. I need those two guys <laughs> side by side. The contrast. I, I need that on my TV screen. I need. Matter of fact, I want that as like the big screen, and I need the game on like the little square. Uh, hey, listen, in the an alternate corner. channel, an NBA.com league pass, you know, alternate stream. Fine. No. <laughs> Show me the game. The, al- anyway, sorry. the alternate stream is just dads, just yeah. NBA dads doing, yeah, doing dad things. <laughs> so in game two, 
Ja Morant was unbelievable. 47, 8, and 8. He had 15 clutch time points, which is the most points scored in the clutch this entire season. This has to be his best performance, right? Is there anything that rivals it? No. No, I think the combination of you're in the second round of the playoffs. Uh, yeah. you know, like that that kind of yeah. is the tiebreaker uh, when you factor in his other big scoring nights or nights where he had great dunks and then also performed well as a team. No, I mean, scoring the last 15, um, beating the Warriors in a very close game and then posting 47, 8 and 8. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I'm happy with saying that's that's the best he's ever been. Yeah, Keith, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the, the Grizzlies have officially been declared as dirty. They're a dirty team, I heard a this. dirty dirty city, dirty <laughs> coaching staff, dirty roster. And now because of their dirtiness, uh, Dylan Brooks has been suspended for game three uh, after that hit he took on, uh, uh, after that big hit he got, got on that flagrant foul, resulting in Gary Payton the second fracture in his elbow. Uh, I guess just with him, without him in game three, obviously a big loss. Who are you expecting to step up uh, in his absence, uh, you know, without him in that starting lineup? Well, I think the obvious one is a hopefully healthy Desmond Bain. Desmond Bain's been a no-show in the first two games of this series because he's had this back issue. He was questionable for game two. He's been receiving treatment every time he's on the bench in both the first games and hasn't been able to get going. So, like, you hope he can step up. If he is... If he is what he was against the Timberwolves, you feel all right about not having Dylan Brooks because you know there's other players who can step in and play like Anthony Melton, like uh, Zaire Williams. If Bain is the guy we saw in the first two games of this series, though, then you have some big issues because we assume, I think everyone out there is assuming the Warriors are maybe going to adjust their defense to, I don't know, maybe send help maybe get the ball out of Jaws' hands, maybe double-team him, maybe don't just allow Jordan Poole to get switched onto him every time the Grizzlies need a bucket. So, like, if the Warriors adjust and if Desmond Bain is hurt, then you're going to need, like, big games from... You can't have a no-show from Jaron, and you're going to need Zaire to knock down threes like he did in Game 2. You're going to need Melton to knock down his shots. Like, then it becomes a much bigger issue for the, for, for the Grizzlies because, like, the Warriors got to be kicking themselves for not forcing someone else to beat them, especially with the kind of strange lineups that the Grizzlies were using in the fourth quarter of that game. Yeah, I kind of want to highlight Bane a little bit because I don't, I don't know if if the average NBA watcher understands how like how great he was in round one. He averaged 23.5 points per game, 50-49-90 shooting splits, which is just crazy. This happened in round one, which NBA.com calls the conference quarterfinals. Do you guys know anybody that calls it the conference quarterfinals? <laughs> not one person. I do not. It's the first round. It's the first round. I was going to sort it. Yeah, yeah. I call, I, I call it the play-in post-round. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, but so far in round two, he's only he's seven points on twenty nine percent, twenty two from three, sixty six from the free throw line. Uh, he's got lower back soreness. Uh, is there any optimism coming from the Grizzlies that he's going to get better? Because they have had this like unusually long layoff between game two and game three. Is there any sort of optimism that he can get back? There's a little bit of optimism. The team said that he did, he practiced on Thursday and is a lot better. Um, I guess another optimism is this is not like a chronic thing that's happened to this year. He's, he's been virtually mm-hmm. healthy all year. This wouldn't be like if, if 
the Warriors said, hey, Draymond's having lower back soreness, and you're like, oh, no, yeah. this has been the problem that, that plagued him all year. Yeah, you, you point out the, the scoring against Minnesota, you know, the 50-40-90. Guess what? He's a 50-40-90 guy. I mean, in the regular season, yeah. he was he was 46-44-90. Uh, like, the guy's incredible. And, you know, if you don't watch Bain a lot and you only saw the Warriors series, you saw a guy who had a lot of trouble moving. Um, even if you've watched Bain a lot, you might have noticed, I think the last three-pointer he took in the game he caught it, and he he did one of those like no dip three pointer things, which a lot of guys are trying. Like D'Angelo Russell's mm-hmm. like really good at it. Bain doesn't normally do that. I literally think he couldn't lower his arms. He caught the ball over his head and then like tried to shot put it like with a, a soccer throw type thing. And see Anthony Morrow, yeah, yeah. As a Grizzlies fan, you're like that is not how he shoots the basketball. That was like he's not okay at all. Um so yeah, I mean I I think we're hoping just cuz he's pretty young and it hasn't been a chronic issue that maybe it isn't as bad uh for games 3 and 4. Yeah, and I I just checked uh with one of my Grizzlies guys and they said Jaron Jackson just picked up his second foul at breakfast. So uh <laughs> he, he's going to be in foul trouble headed into the read. <laughs> I mean, I think he's the guy he just walks around with two fouls everywhere he goes. I, I mean, he, he's been one of the more up and down guys during his playoff run because when he's been good, he's been so good on both ends with his rim protection, outside shooting, being able to slash to the rim as a big guy, but also just the fouls have been so terrible throughout the playoffs. Just uh, what do you want to see from him as this series shifts to Golden State where the pressure rises and obviously, you know, the, the crowd is going to be against them. Refs maybe lean a little bit more towards Golden State. What, what does he have to do to really make that impact and, and send the series back to Memphis in this team's favor? You know, I might be weird that I'm not as super concerned about the fouls in this series with Jaron. I know he fouled out in the last game. I feel like his the fouls he's taken in this series are so much better than the fouls that he took against the Timberwolves. The Timberwolves, he was committing all these offensive fouls. He was committing weird loose ball fouls with Jared Vanderbilt. And he had to guard Carl Anthony Towns a lot. Like, the Warriors don't have you know, a, a, a big who scores a lot. So uh, despite him fouling out in game two, the fouls he's gotten against the Warriors so far, a lot of them, let's be real, they were kind of borderline calls. Tom Izzo thought one of the calls was terrible. If you watch the broadcast in game two, uh, he's committing <laughs> fouls at the rim, protecting the rim. That's a good thing, I think, from a Grizzlies fan. Like, you're fine with that. It's obviously an issue that he's this plagued him in his career. He was much better this season. So I think as long as he doesn't pick up the really dumb ones, the frustration ones. I think we're going to be okay with it. But he is, he's such a huge key for the Grizzlies. It was weird how he was great offensively game one, and that's the game they lost normally this year mm-hmm. when he makes his, makes his shots. The Grizzlies are virtually unbeatable. So I think as long as he's playing somewhat under control on defense, still providing that rim protection, and then if he can just provide a little bit more on offense, that, that's when the Grizzlies are really formidable. So I know Xavier Tillman had a nice game too, but what's your best defense for Taylor Jenkins not starting Brandon Clark? You know, I, I, I basically don't have one anymore. Um, I guess best defense would be what the Grizzlies have covered six of their last seven games uh, with, uh, okay. <laughs> with Brandon Clark coming off the bench. <laughs> no, they, they like the rotation somewhat. I've been losing my yeah. mind over on my Grizzlies podcast, Grits and Grinds, with like the, the data says that they're way worse when Xavier Tillman plays and the Brandon and Jaron front court is absolutely the best front court combination. And with Jaron's foul trouble, 
if you don't start Brandon and Jaron together, you're limiting, I would argue you're artificially limiting the amount of time you can play your best lineups together. So that's been a big frustration of like, so why are we wasting this time with Xavier Tillman? Well, in game two, Xavier Tillman was excellent on defense. He picked up three steals. Um, the, the Grizzlies really gave the Warriors offense fits uh, when he was on the court with the ability just to switch everything. Um, and like, the ability of Tillman to kind of somewhat be able to stay with the guards, uh, you know, like that, mm-hmm. that's been a really nice look. So I think the argument is they like the way it sets up the rotation later. They, they don't maybe want to waste their Brandon and Jaron minutes uh, early, I guess <laughs> they're worried about, I mean, maybe they're worried about the way the, the, the refs were calling the, the playoffs, like not just Christmas games, but all the playoff games were just like f- so many foul calls. And they're like, listen, yeah. let's get, Let's get Tillman out there to sop up a few of the early calls, uh, and then we'll bring Brandon Clark in. But I think absolutely the Grizzlies, you know, they're not playing Brandon Clark as much as possibly could. And, like, I've seen no negative effects of when he plays, like, 36 minutes in a game. He had these huge fourth quarters against the Timberwolves when it's like Mm -hmm. the guy's been on the court the last, like, 19 minutes of game time. And so when you have games where you're like, oh, he played 28 minutes, uh, free Brandon Clark. <laughs> let's just play. Let's see what happens when he plays 36, 38 minutes. I would definitely like to see them start Brandon Clark. It's going to be even more interesting with Steven Adams coming back into the fold. Yeah. I don't know if they're going to play him at all. It's not as terrible of a matchup possibly um, as it was against the Timberwolves where they benched Steven Adams, but it's also not ideal. I think maybe Warriors people might prefer to have something they know they can attack on like high screens to like get their, their shooters, you know, threes off the dribble. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, would you start Brandon Clark and bring Steven Adams off the bench? Would that be like a weird, a weird wrinkle? If, if Looney is going to play more, like would then you play Steven Adams? I don't know. Like, but going back to your first question, the argument for Tillman, uh, you know, he has a little bit of defensive versatility, but most of the games he's played, the Grizzlies have been badly outscored when he's been out there. So uh, I'm not in favor of it, and I I still struggle uh, figuring out why they've just stuck with it. Yeah, you got to preserve Stephen Adams' nuts against Draymond uh, <laughs> right. Green too. With the way this series is going, <laughs> that's right. It, it, he was guaranteed to get kicked in the nuts. Yeah, you got to yeah. save him till Game Seven. Save him till Game Seven. That's right. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Keith, what was your prediction pre-series, and have you do you feel like you've had to alter that at all? My prediction pre-playoffs, I like to specify. My prediction pre-first okay. round, I had I had Grizzlies in seven. My prediction okay. after the first round, seeing the difficulties that the, t- the Timberwolves gave the Grizzlies and seeing um, the offensive onslaught that the Warriors had against the Nuggets, I went Warriors in six. Um, okay. You know, I, I guess I haven't changed. I think Warriors in six might be the most likely outcome, but I do think I'd be surprised if it's five, you know? I'd, I'd be surprised yeah. if either team won in five. I don't think many people are picking Grizzlies in five, but I think it's going to go six or seven, and I definitely see it going, you know, either way, like whatever. Uh, whoever picks up the next flagrant two, that decide the series. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. 
Spotify. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Redick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash or Paolo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? The Old Man of the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man of the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, Keith, it's now time to play William versus the Beat, a game show where my good pal William takes on a beat writer in a game of trivia. I don't know why I keep calling you William in this uh, game. Okay, yeah, Keith, you've played this several times before. You know the rules. There are eight questions about the Grizzlies' playoff history. You'll have to pick a number, one through eight, and that will correspond with the question. Uh, If you get that question correct, you will get two points. If you get it wrong, we'll have a chance to steal for one point. We'll go back and forth until all the questions have been asked and answered. Keith, all I need from you right now is a number between one and eight. With one. Question number one. How many games did the Grizzlies play in the playoffs? Before they got their first win? 12. The answer is 12. That's exactly right. They lost to the Spurs in four in 2004, the Suns in four in 05, the Mavs in four in 06, and they didn't get their first playoff win until 2011 against the Spurs. Very, very good. Yeah, his his confidence right. in answering that didn't make me feel very good about my chances here, but I'm still, I'm still feeling good. Yeah, I'm still I, feeling I knew good. that one. All right, I knew that one. <laughs> okay, well, give me a number between two and eight now. I'm going to go uh, seven. Number seven. What is Tony Allen's career high in the playoffs? If you get within two, I'll give it to you. I'm going to go with, uh, I'm going 17. 17 is correct. It's right within two. He oh. says 19 is his Oh, I was going to guess high. 20. Oh, yeah. well, pl- wow. well played, Will. So close. I thought I hit it uh, on the right. nose. I was going to go crazy. All right, Keith. Uh, number one and number seven are taken. Any of the other numbers between one and eight? I'll take two. Question number two. In eight games so far, Desmond Bain has taken 64 threes, which is third most in the playoffs, only behind Steph and Clay, who have 70. How many total threes did Desmond Bain take in last year's gentleman's sweep against the Jazz? Wait, do I have to nail it? I'll give you, I'll give you a, uh, a two-three <laughs> grace seems, period. That seems, that seems really hard. Um, I'm gonna say last year he took. I'm gonna say he took eight three-pointers. Mm, that oh, is incorrect. Man. 
Oh, well, man. So I get a chance to steal. Oh, man. If I had to guess, how many threes did Desmond Bain attempt in last year's playoff series against the Jazz? I'm going to go with 21. 21. Mm. So, also incorrect. I, yep. I feel like he took 19 field goal attempts. Is that correct? I don't have his field goal attempts. I only have his threes. Okay. okay. Uh, he took 12 total threes in those yeah. six games. So it's just the jump that Bain has made has been dramatic. Played, incredible. I want to say he played 80 minutes total in that series, and he shot over 50%. That was one of my huge frustrations uh, from yeah. last year, um, <laughs> being like, hey, guys, Bain played awesome in the playoffs uh, last year, but barely played. Um, it's been much more pleasant this year with the free Bain movement. <laughs> Next. So we have three, four, five, six, and eight. I'm going to go three. Question number three. In the 2006 playoffs, where the Grizzlies were swept by the Mavs, Pau Gasol averaged 20 points per game. The second leading scorer only averaged 10 points per game. Who is that player? Oh, God. In 2006. I'm going to go... This is going to be a wild guess. I'm going to go Shane Battier. Shane Battier is incorrect. Keith, chance to steal. 2006, um, Lorenzen Wright? Lorenzen <laughs> Wright. <laughs> Incorrect. The answer is a 34-year-old Eddie Jones scoring oh, 10 Eddie points Jones. per game. That's yes. impossible. That was a tough one. <laughs> yeah, we would have been here all night trying to guess that That's one. right. That's right. I, thought, I saw that and thought, that is unbelievable. Uh, all right, Keith, four, five, six, or eight? Uh, let's do eight. Question number eight. What is Zach Randolph's career high in rebounds in a playoff game? Get within two. I'll say 18. 18. Oh, Keith. No, that's not it. Pressure's on. Pressure's on. I wanted to go higher than that. I'm going to go like 22, maybe. 22 is a great number. It's 21. Oh. oh, amazing. Oh, so close. I figured well, it had to be in the 20s for sure. Well, you get this you get the point for the steal. The score right now is 3 to 2 in favor of Will. Uh, we have questions 4, 5 and 6 left, Keith. Or I guess Will, this one goes to you. This one goes to me. I'm going to go uh 6. Number 6. In the last grit and grind run in the playoffs, who led the Grizzlies in scoring in their six-game loss to the Spurs? To the Spurs. I'm going to go... Um, I feel like you asking this makes me feel like it's not an obvious answer. But I'm, I'm going to go with the obvious answer. I'm going to say Mike Conley. Mike Conley is correct. Oh, wow. Wait. If I get within the tenth of the point, can I get a bonus? <laughs> uh, can you get a bonus if you get it within the tenth of a point? Uh, no. I'm talking exact. Exact if, points. If, if you get it exactly correct, I will give you half 20, of a bonus point. 26.4 points per game. It's 24.7 points per game. Oh, oh I had to swing. <laughs> <laughs> so now you lose half a point, actually. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Keith, four or five? Uh, let's go with four. Question number four. How many total overtimes has Memphis and Oklahoma City played in their three playoff series? 
Wow, that's really hard. Um, wait, wait, wait. Total total games that went to overtime or total overtimes? Total overtimes. Good Lord. Okay. Um, I'm adding these up. Hang on. Okay. I want to say six. Six. All right, six. That is incorrect. Oh. Mm. Will, to steal. I'm going to go a little more conservative, and I'm going to say four. Four. Also, well, that's definitely ve- wrong, Will. Very incorrect. <laughs> the answer is nine total overtimes. Nine. Jesus. Because they had the, all right, so they, they had the triple overtime uh, yes. back in 2011. Mm-hmm. And then they had the series where, what, the fir- three or four or four or five games went into overtime? Oh, yes. yes. That's right. Yes. I forgot all about yeah. that. That's right. Yeah. And then they had they Nine. did have that, one in 2013. That is so. absolutely wild. Yeah. That's crazy. Those were agonizing. I think, I, I think the amount of standing that I did watching those playoff games at home was, <laughs> it was like 100% of the time. All right. Last question, Keith. You are down five to two. To Will, which is just, yeah. it's astonishing. After after your your start, after that first question, I thought, man, this is, I don't know. These, uh, the, hey, listen, these questions were tough, all right? I'm going to say that they were tough. I mean, Will's <laughs> played a great game, played his hand well. Some of these questions were really hard. So to save face, yeah, the Grizzlies have six coaches in their playoff team history. We're going to try to name them all. So we're going to go back and forth until we have named all of the Grizzlies head coaches oh, that have coached God. a playoff game. So, we'll start with you, Keith. I'm going to go with Taylor Jenkins. Taylor Jenkins. So it's pretty pretty decent guess. Uh, I'm going to go Lionel Hollins. Lionel Hollins is correct. Uh, Dave Yeager. Dave Yeager. Oh, God, that's going to be my guess. Oh, I'm, I'm fresh out now. It's three left. Uh, Oh God! Uh, give me Hubie, Hubie Brown. <laughs> that is correct. Oh. Take that for data, David Fisdale. David oh. Fisdale. Yes, Fisdale one left. Will. Yes. Jeez. Oh, I'm coming up blank here. Uh. Oh God. I got nothing. I'm going. Uh, Mike Miller. <laughs> you got the first name you right. The fir- you, got the, you got the first name right. I was about to say last name wrong. Yeah. It's Mike Fratello. Yes, oh, sir. the czar. But will you win this okay. round of William think- versus the Beast? Five to four. Four. You yeah. Saved a little bit of face there, Keith. There at the end. I just want to uh, say this officially settles the Pelicans versus Grizzlies beef. Uh, people in New Orleans can celebrate now. It's official. It. The Pelicans win. It's over. I don't care if the Grizzlies are the two seed this year. They're the they're the they've won fifty games. The Pelicans probably will never sniff fifty games in the history of the franchise. This settled it. The Pelicans win the Grizzlies beef. Congratulations to everyone in New Orleans. <laughs> Go follow Keith Parrish on Twitter at Fast Break Break. And check out his podcast. He's got two really good podcasts. If you're just wanting to get more Grizzlies content, Grits and Grind is a very good Grizzlies podcast. And then just for some general uh, fun NBA content, Fast Break Breakfast is a joy. Keith, thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks again to Keith Parrish and to Mark Schindler for joining the show today. And double thanks to Will Guillory 
for filling in for my friend Alex Spears this week on the Saturday Slam and Jam. Be sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and we will read that review on the show right here. So please do that. Make sure you mention Slam and Jam, and it will be read. Hope you guys enjoy the weekend and the playoff basketball, and we will talk to you guys again next week. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.